Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church Podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. Well, all right, all right. How we doing? It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for braving the cold. Uh, we never know what weather we're going to have in Atlanta, much like our traffic. We just take it as it comes. So I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today. Welcome, Renovation Online. So glad to spend this bit of time with you. Uh, if this is your first time with the Renovation, a very special welcome to you. We're so glad that you would entrust your journey, or at least part of it, uh, to this community. Uh, two things you need to know right out of the gate. One is you can belong here before you believe. You don't have to believe what we believe to be a part of this community. And number two, you can work out what you believe while you belong here. We are an environment where as you work through the things of faith, you can do so uh, among a safe group of people. Uh, one announcement before we get started, uh, if you hit that QR code for the sermon notes, you'll also find a digital bulletin. So rather than doing announcements every single week, it's going to be there. You'll know what's going on for the week. And so if you want to know, hit that QR code. If you don't want to know, well... Choose your own adventure, okay? Last time we were together, uh, we saw the unfolding of the Jesus revolution as he began to build his church with one simple promise. You will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a promise for everyone who believes. And if you practice the way of Jesus, then you can ask for more of the Holy Spirit every single day. You can ask for it today. God wants to fill and refill you over the course of your journey with him. All you have to do is ask. And so today as we continue the story of the Jesus Revolution, we're going to be back in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse 6. So if you have a paper Bible or a digital Bible or the Bible notes, any of those tools will work just fine. Uh, I'd love for you to read along with me as I read, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power, there's that promise again, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing upward toward heaven. Suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. And they said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord, and if you would say with me, thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word and for what you will do in and through your word. Change us profoundly today, Lord, no matter where we are in our journey with, toward, or even away from Jesus, would we know for certain that this moment was not wasted, but that we heard the call Yahweh, that we heard the voice of God among the gathering of his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I start with a bold statement today? I don't even know why I'm asking, because you know I'm going to, uh, but it felt polite. Can I start with a bold statement? Uh, you want to see and be a part of the kingdom of God. 
You do. You do. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, PL, I'm not even a Christian yet. So I don't know about this whole kingdom of God thing. I'm going to address that in a minute. And then some of you are thinking, well, I don't even know what you mean by the kingdom of God. And I understand that. But I promise you, you want to see and be a part of the kingdom of God. How can I say that so boldly? One, because this is a justice generation. You want to see wrongs righted. You want to see the wicked lose power. You want to see the poor thrive. You want to see equity and inclusion. And even if you're not a part of the justice generation, and when I say that, I'm talking about millennials down. Even if you're not a part of the justice generation, all of us have suffered the sting of death. All of us have suffered the burden of pain. All of us have suffered the limitations of sickness. And what the scriptures teach us is that the fulfillment of all of the good that we want to see and the end to all of the terrible things that violate human flourishing are the fruit of God's present and future kingdom. And that's how I know you want to see the kingdom. Because I know you want to see an end to the wickedness, to the badness, to the abuses. And I know you want to see a beginning of the good. Here's the problem, though. The kingdom has not yet been fully manifested. Jesus promised it, but it hasn't come to full fruition. And so for even, even for those of us who follow Jesus, there's a real tension. We live in the tension of believing a better world has begun, but it hasn't yet been fulfilled. War still rages. Poverty still persists. Death is a reality for every living thing. And the wicked seem to just keep rolling. The problem is that we feel this tension of experiencing the kingdom of God in our lives and in our communities, but not to its full degree in the entire universe. We still hear and see unbelief. We still are plagued by sin and brokenness that shout to us that God's will has not found its full expression. And how does that leave us feeling? Well, the answer to that question could splinter in a thousand ways. But as I thought about it for myself, the, the word that arose in my soul is angst. There's, a, there's an angst inside. It is an angst that makes us uh, uncomfortable as we deal with tragedy. It's an angst that makes us question God when things go sideways. It is an angst that makes us look to people and leaders and politics and systems to solve generations-old issues that will only fully dissolve when God's kingdom is fully realized. It's an angst that cultivates doubt and fear. It's an angst that quietly cries out in our hearts, or maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. I believe you guys have greater faith than me. It's an angst that cries out in my heart, God, if you were real, then this wouldn't be. This wouldn't exist. You would solve this. I get it. I get that angst. It comes over me when I see sin and suffering. It comes over me when I watch the news. It comes over me when I see people's inner brokenness destroy their outer world. But one of the most palpable times that angst came over me is when I first joined the Wellspring Living Board. Now, I've seen some terrible things in my life, especially in other parts of the world. But hearing the stories of women and children being used and abused sent me to another place. I was angry. I, I just enraged, heartbroken, heartbroken. And even as we heard over the 
holiday because they shot a video for us for, for our end-of-year campaign. Even as we heard the incredible good news of all that Wellspring is doing, the data capturing the seriousness of the issue began to consume me. It began to keep me up at night. It began to give me uh, uh, irritation in my stomach. I, I, I can't even fully explain it all. And I remember sitting there asking God, how can this be? Why won't you come to end this horror? I wanted to know that moment. at that moment what it really means to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And God met me in that moment, reminding me that what was happening to those women and children, well, it was a violation of his will, not a product of it. He also reminded me, listen, that the reason Jesus died and rose, and the reason God sent Holy Spirit is so that through God's people, more and more of his kingdom would break in and the horrors of this world would diminish in light of our faithfulness until Jesus returns and ends these horrors completely. The inauguration of a new and better world has already begun. We cannot fall into the trap of hoping that people and politics and power will solve problems that will only bow to the coming kingdom. But your angst is not wrong. It's not wrong. It's just sometimes misdirected. In fact, sociologist and French theologian Jacques Ellul wrote this, Christians were never meant to be normal. Let's just start with that. Okay, so stop trying to be normal. Be weird. Okay, it's awesome. The Bible literally calls us peculiar people. Some of y'all need some more peculiarity in your life. Okay, Christians were never meant to be normal. We've always been, I love this, we've always been holy troublemakers. You know, the problem with the Western church today and, and, and what I've gathered from my friends who are far from God is that the church today doesn't look like holy troublemakers. It looks like power-hungry people trying to dominate people's choices and lives. We were meant to be holy troublemakers. We've always been creators of uncertainty, agents of dimension, that's incompatible with the status quo. We do not accept the world as it is. We insist on the world becoming the way God wants it to be. And the kingdom of God is different from the patterns of this world. So as we wrestle with our angst, we just need to ensure that the resolution of our angst is not found in temporary worldly solutions, but instead point to the eternal consequences of the kingdom of God. And that's what we find Jesus doing here in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. Luke resets the scene, if you're following along with me. He resets the scene on the heels of Jesus promising his disciples a divine power through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The angst of the disciples is directed to Jesus' reference to the kingdom of God back in verse 3. And they pose this question to Jesus. The question is, Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, does Jesus' statement about the kingdom of God mean that he intends to restore the earthly kingdom of Israel? And who can blame them? 
Even though Jesus had told them several times before his crucifixion that his kingdom was not of this world, these men and women were products of generational oppression. These men and their families had been under the rule of hostile governments and puppet leaders. And in the back of their minds were the stories that they'd heard as children. They remember the kings, David and Solomon. They remember the glory days of Israel. And they were familiar with the prophecies of a Messiah that would come to establish God's kingdom in the world. The issue is that they were looking for a political kingdom when God gave them an eternal promise. They were looking to the right king, listen, but they were looking for a kingdom he didn't promise. And we've been guilty of doing the same, haven't we? We, we can look to the right king for the wrong kingdom. Their question reflects the Jewish hope that God would establish his rule so that the Jewish people would be freed from their enemies, especially the Romans. It betrayed their hope that the kingdom would be established through military means and political power, but Jesus ushered in the kingdom in a radically unexpected way. He announced that the kingdom had come upon those that he freed from demons, Matthew 12, 28. He taught that the kingdom should be received like a child, Mark 10, 15. He explained that it belongs to the impoverished, Luke 6, 20. Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was a present reality that could be experienced by those he taught and to whom he ministered. And his teaching also assumed that the kingdom was a future reality borrow a phrase made popular by the late George Eldon Ladd, the kingdom of God is already not yet. God's kingdom has a dual dimension. Wherever God's will, listen, wherever God's will is carried out, the kingdom is brought into reality. Wherever God's will is carried out, the kingdom is brought into reality. The kingdom, however, has not been fully manifested. It was not fully manifested in Jesus' day. It's not in our day. We do not live in a world where God's will is complete reality. And that is the difficulty for those of us who practice the way of Jesus. The disciples' question also betrays how we sometimes respond to our angst for a world made right, hoping that the political power or people of influence will fulfill our hopes for justice and mercy and freedom. In fact, I was traveling this week to Orlando, and uh, I picked up a magazine, Cigar Aficionado. Uh, this is not a paid promotion. And it was an interview in there with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And unsurprisingly, he had a lot to say about a lot of things. Um, <laughs> but what struck me from the article is twofold. First, he tells the story of being elected governor of California and how tears ran down his face as he heard his name announced. And here's what he said that made me take a step back. He said, it was the most powerful thing I've ever heard. And I thought to myself, how shallow a word of power that the most powerful thing you've ever heard or felt is that you were announced as governor of a state. As I read his words, I heard the echoes of the disciples here in Acts and the echo in my own heart at times that the most powerful thing we can do or experience is tied to leveraging earthly power or means to affect change. And Jesus is calling us to something greater. Arnold was emotionally overcome at the thought, and this is a direct quote, of helping 40 million people. But that was in the temporal cares of their life. 
while Jesus invites us to serve people's physical needs and, and see them secured in the eternal things of life. What the disciples had not yet realized is that Jesus had transformed the Jewish hope of the kingdom of God by purging it of its nationalistic and political elements. Now, you apply that wherever you want to apply it in our common time. Jesus' revolution was not about wrestling this world from the hands of the wicked through political force. It was about redeeming it completely and leaving no place for them in the future. The kingdom of God inaugurated by Jesus was a promise to all people that where history is headed is toward a world reverberating with the goodness of God and political power or military might will not get us there. When Jesus prayed, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what he was asking is that God would bring the experience of heaven to earth. And through Jesus, God's reign, rule, and power are available to us today, not just in a distant future. The present reality of the kingdom should prompt us to examine our lives and ask the question, where have we not yet surrendered to God's rule? And the present reality of the kingdom should lead us to examine, guess what? Not just our lives, because that's Western churchianity. That is the democratized, individualistic version of the Bible that I don't believe in. It's not just about examining our own lives. It's also about examining our neighborhoods and the global community and asking the question, what in this world is outside of God's desires? And how can I, by the Spirit of God and the power of God, effect change in that area? It should lead us to long for those far from God to be reconciled to him. And it should lead us to care for those who are on the margins, who are hurting, who are disenfranchised. As we anticipate the time when all things will be made fully new, Revelation 21, we can actively participate in the kingdom of God now. As we surrender to the reign of God, we will begin to experience the kingdom of God now. And God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, rather than rebuke the apostles, Jesus actually deflects their question. He tells them that they should not be concerned with timing. There's a word in there for some of us. Jesus is clear that the matter of timing of God's actions is his business. And it's not open for human beings to question. Since this is God's mystery, we should probably avoid human speculation. Instead, the disciples must accomplish the task of being witnesses to Jesus. The locations mentioned here in verse 8 represent a methodical and geographical broadening of the scope of God's mission. It moves from Israel's capital to the broader land of Israel and then to the entire world. Interestingly, if you look at the structure of Acts, and I know most of you are not nerdy enough to want to do that, but for the five, if you look at the structure of Acts, it actually unfolds in the reflection of that mission. The church spreads in Jerusalem, verses one through, or chapters 1 through 7, and then into Judea and Samaria, chapter 8, and then to the surrounding nations, chapters 9 through 28. The scope of their task is worldwide. It stretches to the ends of the earth. And here is the beautiful part. We are grafted into that mission. The end of Acts does not mark the completion of the task. Is simply the completion of the first phase. 
for this mission, the disciples are promised the power of the Holy Spirit, a promise primarily fulfilled at Pentecost and secondarily fulfilled on many other occasions. Can I go nerdy for one minute? The Greek word here is dunamis. It can refer to power displayed in miracles or the ability of God or people to carry out his purposes. And that is the point that by his power, God will empower his people to accomplish his work. We are called to testify about Jesus, to announce the reality of his death, his resurrection, his kingdom, his lordship, his hope, his future. Listen, the power of the Spirit is for the mission of God. The Spirit does not empower us for the sake of being empowered. We are empowered by the Spirit for the sake of God's mission and the right placement of that holy angst. God's mission is one of the central themes and facts and motives of the narrative of Scripture. God's mission begins with God. Did you know that? His mission finds its origin in his loving character. God freely creates and then works to redeem creation. God's mission is oriented toward God's kingdom. As Jesus proclaims it in John chapter 3, the God of Scripture is a missionary God whose mission involves the establishment of a universal reign on earth. And from the beginning, we see humanity included in the mission of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and spread my will into it. God de delegates the authority to work and to take care of creation to humanity. So let me say this as an aside, the care and stewardship of creation is necessary for all who participate in God's mission. And the biblical narrative continues against the backdrop of sin's entrance into the story as God forms a distinct people with a mission to be a blessing to the nation. In Israel, God chose a people to embody the divine purposes for creation and be a light to the nations. And what we see in the Old Testament, moreover than not, is the history of Israel's rejection of that divine calling. But it was in Jesus that the mission of God was fully enacted. Jesus served as the agent of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus took upon himself Israel's missionary vocation. And when his earthly ministry was over, Jesus left his followers with the mandate to continue the mission that he inaugurated and he established. The church is sent into the world to preach the good news of Jesus by and with the authority of the triune God. The church's mission is to bear witness to God's reign through the proclamation of the gospel in various forms. Listen, through life-giving relationships within the church and beyond it, through having the heart of a servant within the church and outside of the community of faith, through prayer and worship of God, through signs and wonders that point toward the restoration of all things, and through the formation of disciples who speak and act and live and look like Jesus. We want to see a move of God in our day. That's what it requires. And if you practice the way of Jesus, you've committed to participating in God's purposes for the redemption of humanity and for the redemption of creation itself. Now, immediately after Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him away before the eyes of the disciples in verse 9 through 10, we see the disciples portrayed as looking intently into the sky as Jesus disappears. A detail which suggests that they are longing for the reappearance of Jesus or some other happening which will indicate that they have not seen 
the story's final act. Their unspoken prayer is answered by the appearance of two figures dressed in white. The description of that is of angels who wear bright and shining clothing. Their function is to give commentary on what has happened. And so they ask the disciples, why are you looking up into the sky? The question is an implicit rebuke, by the way, of them lingering there and longing for Jesus to remain rather than getting on with the work that Jesus mandated for them. Already the disciples have been commanded as to what they are to do, and now they are given an assurance that the ascension of Jesus is a guarantee that as it was possible for him to ascend, so it will be possible for him to return in the same way. And so the promise of Jesus' return at the close of time as we know it It does what? It forms the background of the hope against which the disciples are to act as witnesses to Jesus. In effect, the present passage corresponds to Jesus' statement in Mark 13.10. That the end of time as we know it can't come until good news has been proclaimed to all nations. Another way to say that is Jesus will return when his mission is complete. And so if you're sitting there right now and you're longing for Jesus to return because the world is so horrible, and it is in so many ways, then the very best thing that you can do is get about the mission of the kingdom. Because once all the earth has heard that there was a God who loves them, who sees them, who wants good and flourishing for them, then Jesus can return. Now, I am sure that if you don't yet practice the way of Jesus, that was a lot to try and digest. But I hope in it you will not be clouded and miss Jesus' central message, that this kingdom that Jesus spoke of is rooted in understanding that not only did Jesus give his life on a cross to save those individuals who are far from God, But he also gave his life so that this world, once called very good, would be restored to wholeness. Jesus' death and resurrection signaled the fulfillment of God's promise not to give up on our world. And it signaled an invitation to you and to me, to you and to me, to participate with him in the renewal of this reality. And so I guess the invitation today to you is this. Join Jesus in the world you were made for. And join Jesus in creating the world you were made for. Free of sin, free of pain, free of heartache, free of sorrow. Jesus inaugurated it in his first coming. He will fulfill it. All he asks us to do is repent of rejecting his love and leading and believe that he is who he says that he is. I'll close with this. It's a quote from Brennan Manning from a book called The Furious Longing of God. And I love this opening line. You ready? The gospel is absurd. And the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived, died, and rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make a brand new creation. Not to make people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women, 
who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the spirit that burns within, who would live in even ever greater fidelity to the omnipresent word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and mystery of Christ, into the center of the flame that consumes, that purifies, that sets everything aglow with peace and joy, boldness and extravagant, furious love. This, my friend, is what it really means to be a Christian. Before I encourage you to respond, I guess there's a question to be answered. Do you really want to be a Christian? And if so, then here's our call. Live into the mission of God by bringing the kingdom of God with you everywhere you go. Look for opportunities to share the gospel with a neighbor or friend. Invite your one more to gather with your spiritual family. Look for opportunities to serve the poor and marginalized. Pray for God to show you how to bring the kingdom to wherever you are. Listen to me. Love with furious love. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means. And we got a lot of big vision around here. And our vision for this year is to see 84 people baptized before August 31st, to see 560 first-time guests before August 31st. And if we're going to see any of those things, then we have to live out that Christianity that Brendan Manning described, the one that is not just concerned with me but is concerned with the world around me, the one that is not just concerned with my desires but concerned with what God desires for all people, the one that has hope that human flourishing is on the other side of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and that one day it will be fulfilled on the hills of our faithfulness. Let's be that type of people. And then we'll see the change that we want to see. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for your word and for what it means to sit under your word. And we pray now that you would seal this to our hearts in a way that is palpable, that transforms, that makes us new. In Jesus' name we pray.